Thanks so much for joining us for the New Life Coolangatta podcast. New Life Church is one family, many churches, and we exist to simply see more people more like Jesus by planting and leading thriving local churches. You've joined us in a series we've titled Paradox, A Different Way to Live. In this series, we will uncover the profound truths hidden within these seemingly contradictory statements as we embrace the challenge to follow Jesus' footsteps and be a catalyst for change in our world. We pray that this message is a blessing. Hey, this morning we get the absolute privilege of being joined by our New Life Brisbane location, Pastor Alex Stark. So we're super excited by that. But before we welcome him to the stage, I'd love you to join me as I read the scripture. The scripture today is Matthew chapter 16, and we're going to start in verse 13 uh, to 18, skip a couple of verses, and then read 21 to 23. So if you have your Bibles, uh, go ahead and turn to them. Otherwise, it'll be on the screen behind me. That's what it says. When Jesus came to the region of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do people say the Son of Man is? And they replied, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and still others say Jeremiah or one of the prophets. But what about you, he asked, who do you say I am? Simon Peter answered, you are the Messiah, the son of the living God. Jesus replied, blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, for this was not revealed to you by flesh and blood, but by my father in heaven. And I tell you that you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades will not overcome it. From that time on, Jesus began to explain to his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things at the hands of the elders, the chief priests, and the teachers of the law, and that he must be killed and on the third day be raised to life. Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. Never, Lord, he said, this shall never happen to you. Jesus turned and said to Peter, get behind me, Satan. You are a stumbling block to me, and you do not have in your mind the concerns of God but merely human concerns. Hey, could we put, uh, can we give a warm welcome to Alex Dark as he comes up and shares the word with us? Thanks, brother. Awesome. How are we doing, friends? It's nice to be here. I love coming down to Cooley. I got my um, New Life Cool and Gatter uniform on. Um, my ankles are showing, and I got white shoes that are nice and crisp. So uh, please pass that on to Scott when he gets back. I'm sure I'll get some brownie points. I'm deeply jealous, actually, of uh, New Life Cooley because literally 100 metres that way, you've got the beach. The closest thing to a beach in Brisbane is what we call the Brown Snake, Brisbane River, and it is not glorious, it does not smell good, and so you have to go to the coast. And when you go to the coast, you've got mangroves, and they trap dead fish, and all of a sudden, I don't know, I come here and I'm like, gosh, you, got, you must have to go to the beach every Sunday after church, right? You do that, right? Yeah, good. Okay, good. I can, that's helpful. I'll tell that to Scott as well. Um, I want to open with a bit of an illustration. In 1930, uh, there's a church called the Sanctuary of Mercy in Borgia, Spain, uh, a beautiful little small church in Borgia, Spain. And there was a fresco that they painted, and a professional painter, Elias Martinez uh, Garcia, painted a beautiful picture of Jesus. And in the Christian story, Jesus is king, and we'll unpack a bit about what that means in a moment. But here you see the king on his throne with his crown, a crown of thorns, different kind of king. Beautiful picture. I wonder what that evokes in you. 1930, Borgia, Spain. As the years went on, though, the painting became decrepit. It started to fade, started to chip, and the original image of the Jesus painted by Elias started to degrade and become something that needed restoring. 
And so in 2012, an amateur painter um, came along and she tried to restore the painting and you'll see a picture of it here. <laughs> now, if you had an internet connection, NBN was around by that time, not dial-up, you would have seen this picture doing the rounds. It took the internet by storm. This became one of the key memes in 2012. And originally, the painting by Elias on your left, uh, they, the Latin term they used to title the painting was Ecce Homo, Behold the Man. And indeed, like, Behold the Man. What a stunning painting of Jesus. But later, here's the Latin that they used to describe this picture, Ecce Mono, Behold the Monkey. And literally, it lit up the internet, and there's like, if you type in Eke Mono on Google, the amount of memes you'll find are kind of embarrassing. But the BBC, they call this a crayon sketch of a very hairy monkey in an ill-fitting tunic. And I love that. And you're like, what is the point of this illustration? Well, I think here you've got an image that grew degraded over time, got restored by someone who didn't see the original image, and people laugh at it. And I think, actually, the church finds itself in a similar situation today. And I think that the church finds itself in a similar situation today where people are walking away from the church disenchanted or people are looking at the church laughing, not because we've been faithful to the original image of Jesus that he gave us in his life, but actually because we've forgotten the original image. And when you forget the original image, Jesus' life, Jesus' death, Jesus' resurrection and we start to project onto him all of our amateur definitions of what God might be like, and we settle for a poor image of him and a, and a worse life for ourselves, and that results in the world looking at us being disenchanted or thinking of us as humorous and domesticated. But here's where we're going as a church. What would it look like to come back to the original image? What would it look like to be obedient to who God revealed himself to be in Jesus Christ? Now, for this reason, we're starting a new series today called Paradox, A Different Way to Live. The Oxford English Dictionary describes, defines paradox, you'll see it on the screen behind me, as a seemingly absurd or contradictory statement or proposition which, when investigated, may prove to be well-founded or true. And I think we've all had that experience, whether you're new to faith, whether you're exploring faith, or whether you've been a Christian for a long time, you would have had the experience of thinking at first glance, oh man, Jesus is kind of cool. You know, if I come to Jesus, I get meaning, I get life, I get joy, I get peace. But then you dig a bit further in the Gospels and you actually read Matthew, Mark, Luke and John and they start to report the claims that Jesus made and some of the teachings that he had. And you read these words, die to live. To be the greatest, you must become the least. Turn the other cheek and pray for your enemies. If you want to win, lose. In fact... Take up your cross. Peter, get behind me. You do not have the concerns of God in mind, merely human concerns. I've got a different trajectory, a different kind of kingdom. It's a paradox. And at first glance, you think, gosh, that's counterintuitive. In fact, you read those words, and even Jesus' brother James, who wrote a letter at the back of the New Testament, he said something like this, if someone takes your coat, give them your other coat. And you're thinking... Are you kidding me? Right? Like, I think Christians in the modern world, we read that, we're just like, what an absolute show of generosity. I'm so glad the early Christians might have done that. <laughs> you know what I mean? But we think it's absurd. It's counterintuitive. It's costly. 
But here's the deeper truth. If you've tried it, or you've met a Christian who might be decades along in their apprenticeship after Jesus, and they model something of his life that's so captivating and magnetic, actually, you know, it's a paradox. It's not a contradiction. That the hard teachings of Jesus, though costly, are the most compelling things in the world. And if we just give our lives to them, actually, to transform us from the inside out and the society in which we find ourselves, people would stop looking at the church disenchanted. But actually, they'd see us as a force for good, a different kind of people with a different kind of king. So I want to talk today about the paradox of the kingdom, and I want to explore two major points. And so if you're taking notes, follow me along. We'll be in Matthew 16, and the hope is that we see two things. One, that the kingdom of God is upside down because, one, we have a crucified king, and two, we're a called out people. Or I want to say it like this, we're a called out army. So let's jump into it. A crucified king. As this passage opens, you'll note that the writer, Matthew, locates where the disciples are, and they're in a place called Caesarea Philippi. Now, the story goes that this is a town on the border of the Mediterranean Bowl, and historically, it's a pagan city, and it wasn't huge. But under Herod the Great, a particular governor at the time, who sort of was an ambassador of the state of Rome, he starts to invest money and infrastructure and time into building this city up, to become this port town, this dock city, this place within which money and power is all located and it's all a testimony to Caesar, because of which he actually takes the town called Philippi and calls it Caesarea Philippi. It's a tribute. And it's kind of like propaganda. Because with all the pomp and the ceremony and the beauty and the architecture, what they're saying is, here's an outpost colony of the reign of Rome. And what is Rome? Rome is the seat of the authority of Caesar. Now, who is Caesar? Caesar, Augustus, before him, Julius Caesar. Julius Caesar lived between 144 BC. You count, you count upwards or backwards when it's before the birth of Jesus. It's hard, it's weird, I don't know. But 100 to 44 BC. And he was someone who, under his leadership, expanded the Roman Empire so that when we look back in history, we think, man, Rome was great. But how did he do it? He did it through might through military power, through conquest. He did it through money. And even more than that, he did it through propaganda. So he took the Roman Empire and expanded it by a huge percent. He overcame barbarian tribes, and he installed a whole host of infrastructure within, which, within how Rome organized itself, because of which they became the superpower they did. But the three ingredients that made Rome so great was Caesar's political power, his military might, and his propaganda. Now, an example of the propaganda, just go with me on this one for a second, is after he died in 44 BC, in 42 BC, so two years later, uh, the Senate in Rome assigned to Caesar divine status. And he was the one, the original Roman emperor, who claimed, and his followers after him, claimed divine status for himself. Now, here's what we know. Was Caesar a god? No. So why did they claim this? Propaganda. Because if you have in the seat of power someone who has divine status, then you worship them, you follow them, you give your allegiance to them, you become loyal to them. And Caesar created an empire much bigger, much worse through power, through might, through propaganda, and therefore everything he inspired in his followers was a result of his command, his intimidation, and his conquest. And here you have Peter, a follower of Jesus, 
stand before Jesus, and Jesus says, who do you say I am? And Peter says, we're in Philippi, named after the emperor to whom we we should give our allegiance by virtue of the place that we live in. We're on the borders of the Holy Land of Jerusalem and the outskirts of the Gentile world of Caesarea Philippi. What I say matters. Who do you say I am? And Peter in verse 18 of chapter 16 says, you are the Messiah. Or, let me translate it a different way, you're Lord. You are emperor. And this is why it's interesting, because right now you've got a clash of kingdoms. On the borders between two different cities, Peter ascribes to Jesus the title that Caesar made propaganda about himself. And then Peter says, with this hope in his heart that maybe he'd liberate the people of Israel, you can't die. And then Jesus takes the title, says, yes, I am the king, therefore Caesar is not, but here's the kind of kingdom I'm going to have. And that's why he rebukes Peter says, get behind me, Satan. The kingdom I have will not be achieved through might, through conquest or propaganda. So what will it be achieved through? Sacrificial, costly love, resulting in me ascending a throne that looks like a cross, because of which I'll reconcile all people to myself. Napoleon Bonaparte, who was himself an emperor of what was before then the French nation-state, He put it like this. He said, Alexander, Caesar, Charlemagne, and myself founded great empires. But upon what did these creations of our genius depend? Upon force. Jesus alone founded his empire upon love, and to this day, millions would die for him. (coughs) Crucified king. No king like Jesus. And when Jesus stands in Caesarea Philippi and says, yes, I'm the king, but here's the kind of king I'm going to be. Here's what it shows us. Whereas every other king in this world, who Caesar embodied so perfectly, will command our worship. Jesus inspires it. Whereas every other leader in this world, because of which we give our loyalty, maybe because of the place that we live in, or the organization of which we're a part, or whether they're a leader in our world in any kind of way, they will demand our loyalty. Jesus just evokes it by the way he lives his life on our behalf and reconciles us to himself. Which means, because we have a crucified king, that should really inspire our worship. Um, Where Caesar commands, Jesus inspires. Whereas Caesar makes us oblige our worship and our loyalty and allegiance, Jesus overwhelms us with his love. The illustration I want to use for this is... um, I don't know if you know this, but crocodiles, they, um, when you think of a crocodile in the game Snap, I don't know if you know this, but like the amount of power a crocodile has in its jaws is, is actually quite scary. By nature, they can amass multiple tons of power to devour their prey. And, you know, all the Steve Owen fans in the room eat your heart out. Like, you watch these things, it's scary. It, they're monstrous. And they can grow, like, to be over three, four, maybe even eight meters long. Um, but... Mother crocodiles, when they're in breeding season, and once their little babies have hatched, are they eggs? I don't even know. Probably eggs, reptiles. Yep, grade three. We're there. (laughs) But what they can do is they grab their young ones in their jaws, and the way they transport them from one home to another is actually in the same jaws that are very unsafe. 
And what you see in a mother crocodile is, I think, what we see in what Jesus has done as our crucified king, that by nature, powerful, scary, dangerous, holy, distant, big, but by character and by mission, near, close, loving, kind. When I first became a Christian, I remember thinking, you know what you could do, God? Because of who you are in your nature, you could just command my worship, right? Like he could rock up, speak from the sky, worship me. I'm God, you're not, read and weep, cards are on the table, peace out, right? But then you open the Gospels and you see this man and you see the way he interacts and he says, yeah, I'm the king. Let me show you. I'm a crucified one. Why? To reconcile us to himself. To take his holiness and bridge the gap between him and our sin and make it real so we could step into relationship with him. It should inspire our worship. So when we worship in a few moments, let's have that image in mind and we'll come back there at the end. We often too become like what we worship and what kind of people does God want us to become? Um, and he wants, he wants us to become a called out army. If I was to ask you the question, what comes to your mind when you think of the church? What would come to your mind? Now, you might think of the person next to you, you might think of this room, you might think of this building. And that's part of it, for sure. These kinds of things have budgets, we have members meetings, we have events, we have programs, and all of that is geared in such a way that it pushes us further on in the vision that God's got for us. But if that is the win in itself, then we miss something. Here in this passage, Matthew 16... Verse 18, Jesus says to Peter these words. Peter has just made the confession that Jesus is Lord, and Jesus says in response to him, awesome, and I tell you, Peter, you are Peter, and on this rock I'll build my church. Side note here, pause for a second. Um, there's two ways to interpret this passage. There's the Catholic way and the Protestant way. And we love Catholics, we think we're all Christians, but there's something to note here. What Catholics do with this passage is they take this and they say, therefore, Jesus is saying Peter is the person on whom he will build his church, because of which what's important in the Catholic church is that there's always someone who apostolically succeeds Peter. So you've got Peter, then the guy after him, down to the Pope that we've got today. Apostolic succession. Peter is the person. We build the church on the person. That's one way to interpret it. The other way is to take verse 18 and see Jesus doing this thing, saying the confession that Peter made about Jesus being Lord is the thing on which he builds the church. And we as good Protestants in the room would say, actually, that's what we think he means, that it's the confession that Jesus is king, Caesar is not. Not a person, but Jesus, God in the flesh, is the king, and that is the thing upon which Jesus builds his church. And, good news, the gates of hell won't prevail over that. So I was in Rome recently, don't travel heaps, but I was, and one of the things I found fascinating is that the basilica, the church that houses St. Peter's bones... Um, is used more as a site for tourism today than it is as a house of worship, which is its own kind of worship, let's be honest, but used more as a site of tourism than it is a house of worship, which should raise us questions in our mind around what we think the church is, what its witnesses in the world should be, and what we want to be together as the people of God. Side note, come back. So, um, verse 18, you are the Christ, the Messiah. Jesus says, on this I will build my, what? Church. This is the only time in the Gospels that Jesus uses this word. And the word itself is ecclesia. Behind me, you'll see a bit of a... Actually, let's go back for that one. Sorry. 
Thanks, Ephraim. And ecclesia, it takes one Greek word, kaleo, adds a preposition on the front, ek, and it's a word used by Jesus to describe what is another way to translate a gathering or a called out people. Now, if you know Michael Hands, our lead minister, you would have heard this before. But the thing Jesus casts vision for here is not a building, it's not a seat, not a pew, not a small group, not an event, not a program. It's a movement that has no bounds, isn't marked out by geopolitics, isn't marked out by denominations. It's a movement of people inspired by the Spirit of God, looking at their crucified king, living lives of costly sacrifice for the sake of their neighbor. That's what Jesus envisions here. But here's what we do. Go to the next one. Thanks, brother. Here's what's happened throughout history. When Christianity spread, it went from Jerusalem, then to the Roman Empire, and then to Europe. And through that transition, we used different words to describe what the church is. So we went from an ecclesia, a called out people of God, to a basilica, which is the Latin word we use to describe the big building in the heart of Rome, which means kingdom or space or location. And then it gets to Europe. And in Germany, the German word for church ended up becoming kirch. And kirch is a meeting place or a building. And here's what happened over history. We took the called out vision of the army of the people of God and we domesticated it. And we take the German word church, from which we get our English word kirch, and we assume that when Jesus is talking about building the church, he just wants to have really good buildings with really good programs that we can really rely on, but that was never the vision in the first place. Now, here's what happens when you domesticate the church. You institutionalize it. When you institutionalize the church, here's what you lean towards doing when you think of the church in your imagination. You want to protect it. You want to consume it. You want to settle, and you want to domesticate it. Now, let me go into that word domesticate. Um, Kath and I, we recently got a dog. His name's Jack, and he sucks. Gosh, he's just a lot of work. I need to be honest about that. And, um, but something that's happened over the years, I don't know if you know this, but I think the DNA of dogs, they share 66% of wolf DNA. And you're like, well, why don't they bite me? Why don't they rip my head off? Why don't they eat me as their prey? And the reason is because of selective breeding. Over the years, dog breeders have selected traits in particular dogs because of which, after they breed the right parties, they get the right things out of them. And over the years, dogs have gone from these big, scary wolves now to being these, like, beautiful, cute, maybe not so much, but meant to be cute, things we can put in our laps. And here's what dogs don't do, unless they're a pit bulls. We'll talk about that later. They don't scare you. They're not a threat. We make memes about them. And they're cute and cuddly. When Jesus envisioned the church, he didn't envision something that was selectively bred by anyone else other than him that's now become domesticated and cute that the world sort of laughs at and Satan definitely doesn't get scared about. It's not what he pictured. But when you domesticate the church, you institutionalize it, which means you consume it, you try and protect it for what it is, and we start to take for granted all the beautiful things we get to experience as an institution, but even bigger than that, more than that. The second thing that happens is we start playing the wrong game. Now, growing up, I, um, uh, I used to play soccer. And sometimes on Australian sports fields, to maximise the economy of the field, you've got two kinds of goalposts that they put in the same space. I'll show you what I mean. Um, in AFL sort of language, or like even NRL, um, you've got like two big posts with a crossbar. You know what I'm talking about? 
Yep, sport analogies are not my thing, so just <laughs> roll with me here. I need your grace. But you've got a crossbar, and the goal of the person converting the goal is to kick the ball over the crossbar. But sometimes on the same sporting fields in Australia, they'll also have a soccer goal as the underneath part. Now imagine you've got two teams on the field. One team thinks they're playing soccer. Both teams think they're playing soccer, but both of them mistake what goal they're meant to kick. And so one team is constantly kicking along the grass underneath the flat bar. And every time they score, they're like, yes, I got a goal. They did get a goal. But the other team comes along, and they're kicking, and they're thinking, actually, they've got to get it over the crossbar. So they start kicking over the crossbar. Who would win? Team one, right? Because they have the right goal in mind. And here's what we do as Christians when we have the wrong goal. We start trying to play the game where we try and protect the institution of which we're a part, which usually looks like us trying to contend for our religious liberties in the political sphere. Oh, we want the freedom to gather. Oh, we just, we want... We want the state to uphold our ability to have Christian schools. And man, we, we don't want the state to impinge upon us gathering as God's people. And, and we start to play what some writers have called a culture war. And we, we assume that the government we're in exists to protect the institution we've become as a church. Now, is religious liberty a good thing? Yes, it's so helpful. It's wonderful means we can gather here, sing songs, raise our voice in worship, hear the word preached, go out, be scattered, share the gospel without risk of being persecuted. That is a blessing. Is our goal to maintain that? It might be a sub-goal. Maybe. What's the goal? What's the goal for the persecuted church in North Korea? In fact, what's the goal for the original church in the early church under the persecution of Rome? Here's what happened in the early church. At the resurrection of Jesus, 500 people were Christians. They were persecuted by Jewish religious leaders. The one, the one who we'll read in, the, in a moment, his name was actually Saul, who became Paul. They were persecuted. Um, they experienced about 30 years of peace uh, right up until the 80s. After the 80s, they experienced about 40 years of persecution and then by 351 AD, I think, no, 312 AD, 350 AD, 51% of the Roman Empire had become Christians through state-legislated persecution of the church. Good goalposts. Why? There's a letter that survives. Oh, if you're wondering where I got those stats, by the way, it's from a guy named Rodney Stark. Um, wish I was related, that'd be nice, but he was a sociologist at, I think, Baylor University in the, in the States, in Texas. And he wasn't a Christian, uh, but he wrote a book called The Rise of Christianity because he wanted to understand how the church exploded in the early centuries. He ended up becoming a Christian as he wrote that book because of what he saw. Now, just pause there for a moment. What did he see? There's a letter that survives from the second century, between 100 and 200 AD, and it's called the Letter to Diognetus. And the Letter to Diognetus, we don't know much about other than that it survives, and it's the letter of a Roman authority writing to another Roman authority trying to capture why are people going to the church? Why are people magnetized towards God's army? Why are people attracted toward this guy they're calling Jesus who seems to have a claim about being king that is in direct competition with Caesar being king. What is happening? So this letter gets written, and it describes the internal and external life of the church. Here's what it said. They dwell in their own countries, writing about Christians, but simply as sojourners, visitors, 
As citizens, they share in all things with others and yet endure all things as if foreigners. Every foreign land is to them as their native country and every land of their birth as a land of strangers. They marry, as do all others, nothing new there. They beget children, but they do not destroy their offspring. They have a common table, but not a common bed. They're in the flesh, but they do not live after the flesh. They pass their days on earth, but they are citizens of heaven. They obey the prescribed laws and at the same time, get this, surpass the laws by their lives. They love all men and are persecuted by all. They are unknown and condemned. They are put to death and restored to life. They are poor, yet make many rich. They are in lack of all things, yet abound in all. They are dishonored, and yet in their very dishonor are glorified. They are evil spoken of, and yet are justified. They are reviled and blessed. They are insulted and repay the insult with honor. To sum it all up in one word, what the soul is to the body, Christians are to the world. What are your goalposts? The New Testament makes an argument, and Paul writes explicitly in Colossians 2, that when we try to be obedient to Jesus, preaching about him, living like him, the enemy shakes. Like he freaks out. What the enemy doesn't freak out about is this assumption that being a Christian means attending a church that like, has worship that I like, or the preaching is entertaining, or like there's enough illustrations, but it's also funny at the same time, so I feel stimulated intellectually, but also like warm fuzzies. Or they don't, The enemy doesn't shudder when it thinks, oh, I, gosh, what really freaks me out is a, is a people that attend an event. The enemy doesn't shudder when um, it, it sees modern Christians trying to get our government to approve of our morality, of our ethics. It doesn't shudder. Wrong goalposts. But listen to this. Paul writes, Colossians 2, verse 13 and onwards, When you were dead in your sins, and in the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made you alive with Christ. He forgave us all our sins. Praise God. Having cancelled the charge of our legal indebtedness, which stood against us and condemned us, he has taken it away, nailing it to the cross. Now, like good Protestants, or dare I say evangelicals, we hear those first two verses and we're like, Yes, it's like an economic metaphor about how God's paid for our sins and I'm free. Good news. It's actually awesome. If you're not a Christian, that is the gospel right there. You can be free. God can pay your debt. You can walk in relationship with him, not because you merit it by your performance, but because you receive it because of his. But Paul goes from economic metaphor about our debt being paid now to this like cosmic weird kind of thing. And just go with me on it because it gives us a different lens to what Jesus did on the cross. Listen to these words. Verse 15. On the cross, having disarmed the powers and authorities, he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them by the cross. What's Paul doing here? Just go with me on this. This will add a depth to what you see as the call of the church. This will add a fire in your belly as you follow Jesus. Paul is taking the climax of Jesus' ministry which is him on the throne called a cross, giving his blood, giving his life, giving his love on behalf of humanity. And he's saying that wasn't just the means by which God paid our debt. It's the model for the kind of life that makes the devil shiver. It makes a spectacle of the powers of this world. 
it makes them freak out. Why? Because the way up is down in the kingdom. The way forward is backward. The way to victory is on our knees. The way to gain is to give. It's better to give than receive in the kingdom of God. And this is the kind of people he wants to call out, not people who settle for a domesticated institution whose biggest ploy in this world is to try and get the government to legislate our way of life. It's to just forget all that and and be the kind of people that follow Jesus in the every single day. Years ago, there was this acronym that came out, WWJD, and I preached on this my first sermon at New Life Brisbane when I started as pastor two years ago. And it became cute. We put it on armbands. It was talked about in youth groups, and it was like, what would Jesus do? What a lovely thought. Isn't that awesome? What a lovely way to start my day. Might put it on a mug. But here's the argument of the New Testament. If you ask that every single day, every single breath, you wage war on the enemy. Now, we as a church planting family want to plant churches. What we don't want to do is multiply institutions. What we don't want to do is think through programs that might be relevant to the space that we're in that might get more people from other churches to join us. We want to wage war on the enemy. We don't want to maintain. We don't want to sort of settle for decay and just be like, awesome, this is good. We want to see those who aren't in the kingdom be one to the kingdom. We want to see those who think that might is right, see the subversive nature of the kingdom of God, be one to it, and join us as the called out army of God that he's amassing across the world. And the thing I want to call us to, and I'll do it this afternoon at New Life Brisbane, I'll do it now, I did it at the 8 a.m. Let's do it together, right? What would it look like if Jesus became the crucified king you worshipped? And you became the called out army of God that looked like him in the world? Let me get really practical. It could mean that no one is safe from you buying their groceries. It could mean that you become the annoying person who's so generous. It could mean that the neighbor that lives next to you, who they come home from a busy work week, they drive through their driveway into their carport and up the stairs without being seen, it could mean that you're the annoying neighbor that interrupts them before they try and sort of cloister themselves off from the world. Why? Hey, do you want to just, do you want to come over for a cup of tea this this Saturday? I just want to know your story. Hey, can, I, can we make you dinner? It could mean that some of us who are sitting on the fence about joining a small group or even opening up at home because we're like, gosh, I'm just, maybe my house isn't that good. Or it'll, it'll demote those anxieties in your life and promote, put higher the agenda of just being the called out people of God with all of our brokenness, all of our beauty together as one family. And you make that decision to not just lean back from community and see what might sort of come your way because the programs are refined, but actually you lean in. You stop consuming and you begin to contribute because really what matters is not the kind of church, this leadership and, and this building is trying to orchestrate. It's actually who's here and what's God inspiring in our hearts and empowering in our midst. So what would it look like for you? Why don't you stand? We're going to worship together. But we've seen, as we looked at the paradox of the kingdom, that we've got a crucified king. We've been conquered by love, and that should cause us to worship. And second, that we're a called-out army. And so we've got a different Monday now, do we not? A different Tuesday, a different week, no matter what our weeks look like. Behind me on the screen, you'll see a picture. And this picture survives from the catacombs of Rome. And just, I'll just shut up for a second. Just look at that picture for a second. What does it inspire in you? What do you see? 
I think the thing that I see the most is the donkey's head. So what's going on in the picture? The Greek text there says Alex Amenos worships his God. And what you've got is a man kneeling before a cross, and on the cross hangs an individual with a human body and a donkey's head. It's not a centaur. Now, cool thing. This is from the Roman catacombs, and it survives as a piece of graffiti from the early centuries of the early church. Historians know when to date it, but they don't know who did it. And the reason why is this. They don't know whether this is pagan, non-Christian leaders drawing graffiti to pay out what Christians worship. Or whether it's a faithful Christian using picture form to detail the absurdity of our God. Isn't that cool? The fact that God would take on flesh and put himself on a cross, what does that inspire in you? If that purely becomes a description of what this guy did in history, it'll mean nothing to you. But if you sit here today as a Christian and you say, actually, he did that for me, that'll inspire your worship. So we're going to worship now. And my ask would be this. Maybe we close our eyes, we posture our hearts, but we're going to worship the king. And there's no other king like Jesus. What would it look like for you to say, even just in the quietness of your own heart right now, Thank you for doing that for me. I worship you. We're going to have people prepared to pray for you down your front right by the cross. If you want to just come and worship our King together, receive prayer for anything you're going through in life at the moment, please do. In the meantime, let me pray for us as we step into worship. And we're going to sing All Hail King Jesus. I think we'll have a new depth to what we say um, when we say that in this next song. Let me pray. God, you are good and you are God. And God, you are Jesus. And God, you're crucified. Thank you that you didn't stay dead, but you rose to new life that you might meet us by the Spirit. Father, would you inspire us? Thank you that you have. And Lord, we just repent for all the times in which we've gotten too familiar with the absurdity of your cross. We repent, Lord, for taking for granted the wonder of who you are and what you've revealed about yourself. And Father, we just say we will give you our allegiance as our crucified king. We will walk in humility. We'll we'll step into the upside-down kingdom for our joy, the blessing of the world, and the glory of you. So Father, might our worship bless you right now. Would you inhabit our praises with your spirit? We love you. Amen. Thanks again for listening to the New Life Podcast. If that stirred something within you or you would like prayer, you can head to church.nu forward slash prayer or contact us through our Instagram or Facebook page. We pray that you have a great week. Be blessed.